George Goldman. Thank you. Glad everybody is here that's here. Uh, we're going to cover hopefully three chapters uh, from What is the Bible Today? Uh, I've changed around the order. I don't know if anybody's reading along. Probably not, but we're covering the third chapter first just to make sure we get it covered. So, um, the first thing we're going to talk about is, is the Bible inerrant? So, um, you know, <clears throat> my, my background, I come from uh, conservative Churches of Christ, and my memory is we would answer this very much yes. Um, and it was important to us that the Bible was inerrant because that way we knew it was God's Word. And if, if it's God's Word and God is never wrong and is all-knowing and doesn't lie, then of course God's Word would not lie or have mistakes in it. So it was kind of a, it, it made a lot of sense. And it's uh, a tradition that a lot of churches share and it's called uh, a high view of Scripture. So uh, I got advice when I went to grad school uh, from a teacher at Lipscomb. He said, just go somewhere where they have a high view of Scripture. So we have a high view of Scripture and then other air, uh, churches, I guess, have low, a low view of Scripture. So uh, I'm going to give you, we've got to cover a lot of things, but I want to give you some time to talk with each other. Talk with some people around you just what you think, what you were kind of raised with. Uh, is this term inerrancy something that you have heard before? Is it something that you were taught? Or is it something you think you just kind of was in the atmosphere of where you went to church? But uh, just for about two minutes, talk with the people around you about is the Bible inerrant? With that, in that language, that language. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, inspired. But can the Bible be inspired and not inerrant? That's, but a lot of people will kind of link those two. Yeah, yeah. If you're saying it has errors in it, then it's, it's like you find any mistake in the Bible. Well, the Bible's. It's close, but it didn't make it, you know. Yeah. 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 I was shocked. Hopefully, we'll make sure Rachel edits this. I was shocked that people, there are students at Lipscomb and professors in Lipscomb that are still like young people. Oh, yeah. Which is mind blowing. I had a discussion in class the other day about that. I had to sit down. <laughs> hey, surely. I was there one time. Well, okay, I'm not in third grade anymore, but people that are in third grade are That's good true. people. You're correct. You're correct. <laughs> That's, that is the gracious way to think about that. I was just floored. I just didn't even, yeah. I didn't even think that they, they were still there. It's just one of those things that it's out of the day, like, it's not a big deal. Kind of, yeah. It matters. You go through stages where it really matters. You know. Okay, let's... Uh, Let's come together some. Um, so let me just hear from a few, a few of you about um, 
if this was your experience and, and what you want to say about that. So what are you guys talking about? I just want to get a couple people. Yeah. We were kind of talking about how with a good portion of our churches, the church didn't necessarily believe that the Bible was inerrant, but there was a lot of people within the church that believed that. And so, like, uh, they just understood, we kind of just understood that that's how the Bible was. Okay. And so they taught that, but that's just what it was. So it may not have been church-wide from the pulpit type teaching, but definitely Sunday school teachers and things like that, it was kind of in the, in the air. Can anybody agree with that? Is that anybody different from that or want to add something to that? Yeah. I'd say it's definitely different in the fact that it was taught from the pulpit. Okay. Up to and including, um, I have a grandfather who was a long time shepherd of a small church in South Texas who he then went through the hymnal and X'd out songs that couldn't be sung because of proof texts or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when, remember a few songs that we changed the, the words to? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there's even like the, like growing up in the church, sometimes it wasn't explicitly said, and sometimes you're not sure if the person like believed that themselves, but it seemed heavily implied, just like growing up, like, this is it. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like we don't have to say that because, yeah, of course, yeah. the Bible doesn't have mistakes. Now, um,. One thing, if it if it is taught properly, um, I mean, all all the Bibles that we actually have have mistakes because they're translated out of the original languages, and the translations aren't always is you don't know exactly how to translate everything. And even beyond that, we have lots of manuscripts of the Bible in the original language. We don't have any of the autographs. Uh, if you f I always tell my students, if you find one, I'll give you extra credit. Um, like five points on a test or something. Um, if you give me a shared publishing credit. But um, so, so we have to make the comment that uh, the way it's usually said, the Bible is inerrant in the original, in the autographs. Because there's copy, the, the manuscripts we have have been copied by scribes and humans. And you know as you make copies by hand, sometimes, I mean we, we know that there are differences in all the manuscripts are all different. And so we have to figure out which manuscript has is closer to being correct. I guess it is possible if we make the right decision and every time it comes up it could, but okay, so we all are functioning practically with errant Bibles and look at us, we're at church and we believe and so is it possible to function with we have to say yes, but for some people it's very important and I, speaking for myself at stages um, that at least in the original there were no mistakes. Okay, so let's uh, see what Rob Bell says in his chapter on this. He says, number one, the term inerrant is not used in the Bible. So you have words like God breathed, um, it's God's word, the word of the Lord, but it's never the term inerrancy came along in the modern, what we call the modern period, scientific period. Yeah. Rob says the Bible writers were doing something far more significant than writing letters and books and stories without errors. So is without error the, the highest compliment you can pay the Bible? Okay. 
So they talk about events unfolding in history that reveal a God who is up to something in the world they want readers to see and join and find life in this movement. So he's trying to point more to what the Bible was intended to do versus what the Bible actually is. Okay? So let's go to the next slide here. So where did people get the idea that without error is the highest form of truth? Now this is coming straight from the book. I'm just going to kind of lay these things out here and then we can talk about it. Okay? Is the sunset without error? Are those his words, without error? Yeah. Because that's not a typical definition of an error. Okay. Well, what do you think? Well, an error is incapable of being wrong. Okay. So if you think about the big picture of what an error really means, incapable of being wrong, the scripture wrong? No. Is it perfect in the way that we read it? Well, no, because on my phone I've got 43 translations. Okay. And they all read a little bit differently. So I, think, I, just, I was just curious where that came from. So you think without error means more like in... It's not wrong. Sure and, that came from because yeah. the definition of an error is incapable of being wrong. Okay. And so that's, to me, that's different. I just it's kind of... Sure yeah. Okay. Good. All right. Is the love between two people without error is the best meal you've ever eaten without error? So he says you don't think about those experiences in terms in those terms because that would rob those experiences of their depth and joy. And then I think one more thing. He says this is an exact quote: "Is the Bible inerrant? I have a higher view of the Bible than that." So why do we think that? the Bible being inerrant is the highest compliment to pay. So, if I'm going to compliment my wife, Wendy, back there, uh, she doesn't make a lot of mistakes. She's great. She doesn't make a lot of mistakes. Is that a good compliment? It's kind of a negative... <laughs> she, she likes it. Do you like, why do you like... Oh, she doesn't make a lot of mistakes. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, neg it's a negative compliment. In some ways, it's not. Is it the highest compliment we can pay the Bible? That's that's the issue that Rob Bell is uh, bringing up. Um, any comments on that? Yeah. Just kind of going off of what you were asking. When you say error, are you meaning an error in theology or an error in grammar? Yeah. Like so there could be degrees of error. So, but typically the way inerrancy is, the way it was taught to me, uh, not in church but in graduate school, uh, I went to an evangelical graduate school that, you know, the statement of faith is the Bible is inerrant in the original autographs, is it would apply to, in the originals, it would apply to grammar and history and science and theology. But some people make the distinction that the Bible is without error in theology, faith and matters of faith and practice. But it can have mistakes of um, history, maybe, or, or science, in the sense that it might have some things that science has since proven, like beliefs of the time. Like maybe the mustard seed is the smallest seed. Um, well smaller seeds than the mustard seed. I brought that up in a class one time and, and um, a student, she's, she went several years distraught by that fact. So I don't want to set you on that path necessarily. Uh, because, But I also have in my library an encyclopedia of Bible difficulties written by Gleason Archer 
where he tries to explain all the potential contradictions or uh, possible contradictions. And on that passage, he says that at the time Jesus was speaking to the audience he was speaking, the mustard seed was the smallest. Um, so there are always ways of... It's, it's called quali- you qualify what inerrancy means. So it, it, you can still have rounded numbers. Um, it's only in the original autographs. Um, that you can still use figurative speech, like talk about the four corners of the earth. Uh, we know that the earth is, doesn't have corners, but you know what that means, four corners of the earth. You can use that type of, so you just start qualifying it. But some people then respond and saying, you're qualifying it so many ways, why even use the term anymore? It's like saying, I'm the best, I'm the best free throw shooter in the world on my home rim, two feet away, no wind, you know. You start qualifying it, you're like, okay, well, you're not the best free throw shooter in the world. Um, so does it die the death of a thousand qualifications is a philosophical term. So, um, that's one thing to put on the table. Is inerrancy the highest compliment to pay the Bible? Yeah. I think it would be if you value being right over everything else. Like, if it's the most important thing to you to be right, well then, yes, you need for the Bible to be inerrant. But if if you have perhaps a more substantial view of there's no way I can be right. There's no way I can... I'm not going to go to heaven because I'm right. Yeah. But then you can live with discrepancies or lack of clarification. Yeah. Whole numbers and sizes of seats. Because that's not why I have to tell Yeah. Does it... Yeah. Does it change the theology of the Bible? And um, I know... I think we feel like we're forced into that position for apologetic reasons. How do we prove that the Bible is God's Word? Well, if, it, if it's different from every other book in the sense that it doesn't have mistakes in it, then it's clearly, we believe it, then it's, then we know, then we can know for sure that it's God's Word. Uh, I've had people say to me, you know, but if you, fr- if you have a friend who makes a mistake, you're still friends with them, right? I mean, does it mean they're, they're not a very good friend? Just because they make a mistake every now and then, but I'm like, yeah, but I'm talking. We're talking about the Bible, which is God's word. It's a little different category. So, Rob Bell is bringing up issues. I don't. I mean, I have to deal with these issues because I teach the Bible, and I teach classes on inerrancy now. Um, and so I'm always trying to, and I'm myself, I'm kind of working through this and what I think about it and how do we, and, and when you come from, like I do from a background where this is kind of how we view scripture and, and want a high view of scripture, there's some fear in starting to go down the slippery slope of, okay, well, if maybe it's wrong, how do you know where it's wrong? If you think there's mistakes in the Bible, how do you tell where those are is a good question to put on the table as well. Okay, let's go to the next so is the Bible authoritative? So a little different term. Um, let's discuss this. So what does the word authority mean? He says it's weight, power, and influence that you give to someone. So he says authority is a relational 
term. He used the illustration of some, their roof was leaking and so he had somebody come look at their roof and they said, well, you need to have all this stuff done. And he, he believed them because he doesn't know how to fix the roof and they do. So you give authority to someone. So authority is relational. Um, so if the Bible has authority, it's because we choose to give the Bible authority. Um, so he's, he's kind of given, maybe according to what you said, you know, it's, it's how you think about it versus exactly what it is, something along those lines. But the Bible has to be interpreted. So this is a direct quote. When someone says they're just doing what the Bible says to do, they didn't greet you with a holy kiss. They're probably wearing two kinds of fabric sewn together, and there's a good chance they don't have tassels sewn on the corners of their garments, all things commanded in the Bible. So those are we obviously don't do those things because we have some common sense. And we recognize that some commands in the Bible still apply, other commands in the Bible for a certain time and place and don't still apply. But how do you know which commands still apply and which ones don't apply anymore? He says they don't believe or practice those things because they've interpreted the Bible in a particular way. So following the Bible cannot be done without interpretation. So when you say the Bible has authority, what he's pressing on is your interpretation of the Bible. The Bible has to be interpreted. And so you have to give authority to a certain interpretation of the Bible. So the Bible, you know, I've, I've heard people say, you just read the Bible and do what it says. But as you read the Bible carefully, you're like, well, there's some things in there that, that we don't do. I'll greet one another with a holy kiss. And I think on, on the other side of this, well, that's common, it's common sense. Is it common sense? In some ways, yeah. I mean, cultures change, and so how, you know, we would say greet one another with a hearty handshake or a side hug, uh, something like that. How you doing? <laughs> oh, not like Joey on Friends. No. Uh, how you doing? Okay. He says, so we can give weight and power and influence to this ancient library of books with our minds and hearts fully awake and engaged. That doesn't mean we blindly accept it. It means we think about it and interpret it and wrestle with it and discuss it and challenge it. So that last sentence, we think about the Bible, we interpret it, we wrestle with it, we discuss it and challenge it. Um, do you agree with all the verbs in that sentence? The one I'm thinking about is challenge it. Hmm. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, if you just accept the Bible face value and never actually have anyone like maybe like challenge it and have you like have to think about it, sometimes like someone will just say something and it'll completely like that you feel like your faith is in shambles because you're like I haven't thought about this ever and mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that gets to the point of it has to be interpreted. And different people interpret it different ways. So you hear one interpretation and you hear another interpretation. Which, how do you choose? Yeah. Hand it back there. Um, I was going to say something similar 
Yeah. There's a lot of factors to go into reading the Bible and applying it. Your own experience, um, the culture you live in affects how you read the Bible in ways that you don't see until you read it with somebody from a different culture and they see things that you never saw before. And so you don't realize all the things that factor into interpreting the Bible. It's pretty complex, but anybody who's in a close relationship with somebody else, for example, a marriage, uh, know how difficult communication can be sometimes. Wendy often says, you always take everything I say and miss, you know, you never understand exactly. I never get it, do I? I mean, oh, if it can be misinterpreted, I will misinterpret it. <laughs> I think just because I'm trained in interpreting the Bible, I, I always see meanings in there that don't really exist. It makes me wonder if my interpretation of the Bible is fatally flawed in lots of ways because I can't even understand a simple command. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> Scripture has to be consumed. It can't just be viewed. And I think that's one of the reasons that just our faith in general has gone through the cycles it's been through because when we started originally there was a lot of um, consumption of the scripture mm-hmm. but then we got to this point like in my childhood even before that where we just took everything on its face value and didn't think about it or consume it and now I think where we are today like in this particular congregation is we're starting to consume it again and we're starting to look at it and think yeah. about it and, and really take it inside and see what it means instead of just saying well that's the way it was and one of the things that was real happening for me as a kid was when I saw people take literally a phrase out of a whole paragraph and try to make a point out of that. Like, well, it's just, you're missing out the point. You didn't even see it. Yeah. You just literally did a word search, you know, yeah. through the thesaurus or whatever. Right. And so I think it's that cycle that we go through of consuming the scripture. Yeah. That's and, and if you think of the Bible as an object versus, in some ways, a subject in that God is speaking to us through the Bible and trust that in that process God is working and I I would say and this is a question that I have of after reading this book is you know how what do we expect of the Bible and maybe if we I think maybe a good thing is is that it it still is a book that God works through and that's why that's why it's lasted so long is because people generation after generation have seen God working through this library of books in ways that doesn't happen with other books. So in some ways it's, it's different. Yeah? I think there's pretty good precedent in Scripture as well of, of challenging the Word of God. Abraham and Moses and Job. I don't think God expects you know, blind following um, and, and, and God makes space for that and that's okay. Yeah. And you might not like the answer you get back but, yeah. but God, God lets people challenge him. Yeah. Because I've been in situations where people say, well, the Bible says this, therefore you need to do this thing that doesn't seem to be, you know, like on divorce and remarriage and things like that. I remember uh, situations where somebody had been divorced and remarried two or three times before they come to our church. And when we co- they come to the church and we find out, oh, wait, you weren't always married to that person? Who were you first married to? And then why did you get divorced from that person? And if they didn't get divorced for scriptural reasons, then in God's eyes, you're still married to, you're really married to the first person. Where is that person? Oh, well, they live in another state where they got their own family. I got this family. Well, here's, here's some advice. That, I would have left that church a long time. Here's some advice the church gave. Well, you can still live in the same house. You can still live in the same house with your wife. But like brother and sister, I mean, you're not... 
to have any intercourse sexually. And so it kind of marriage becomes boiled down to that one thing. So, I mean, and, and so you start, when your interpretation of the Bible starts going at such odds with what seems to make sense, that the Bible is calling you to be faithful to your relationship, and you, you can't always go back and fix everything, um, you start to wonder about our interpretation. Okay. Here's the last thing. What about the contradictions? So, um, we're going to talk about one that he brings up in the book. So, in 2 Samuel 24, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He incited David against them saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So, uh, taking a census doesn't seem like that bad of a thing, but why do you take a census? For taxes? For military? Draft? So, the thought is, David's taking a census is David's way of saying, I'm going to do things the way all the other nations do. And God kind of takes that as, no, I want you to trust me. Um, taking a census is kind of a sign that you're going your own way and not trusting me. Something like that. Um, then, in uh, First Chronicles, so First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings has one history of Israel, and then I don't know if you've ever read First and Second Chronicles. It starts off with ten chapters of a list of names, so people tend to get bogged down and skip that, even the whole books. But um, it's it's another review of the same events, but it's written later in Israel's history, and in the same series of events where in 2 Samuel it talked about God inciting David. It says Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census. So, uh, discuss with some people around you, is this a contradiction? How do you deal with it? Did God incite a census or did Satan? How, how would you deal with this contradiction? Contradiction. Okay, so discuss for a little bit. Would you just say that God did it by letting Satan do it? Was that harmonizing? Was that harmonizing? Yeah. Because I mean, like in, in that in that sense, it would have been you use Job as a way of saying that has happened before. We've seen it done before. Yeah. Yeah. Has allowed Satan yeah. to to do to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Problem solved. <laughs> That's easier than Rob Bell's answer. <laughs> I like it. It feels it feels more meatier than mine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
Did you finish it? Did you finish it? Yeah. It's good. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know what to do with it. But I'm just not used to thinking the Bible, and, you know. I'm, I'm used to the old ways, the well-worn path of inerrancy and everything. I mean, I, I haven't been inerrancy for a while, but uh, but then what's a positive? What positive do you say? Yeah. Still working on that. Okay. Um, let's get a few ideas on that. Um, and see where you're at. Um, so, uh, in Samuel it says that God incited David, and in First Chronicles it says Satan incited David. Is this a problem or not, and why or why not? What are you guys talking about? Yeah. So recognize that although God is the author of the Bible in some sense, there's also human authors. I mean, that is a step uh, to say, to recognize that human authors had freedom to tell the story with different details, for sure. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's that uh, verse that like, God will never allow you to be tempted more than you can handle. So like, more for You know, one of the things we do when we compare different manuscript traditions um, or 